Hi, I'm Valerie, and you're listening to The Beauty Brains. Beauty Brains, a show where real cosmetic chemists answer your beauty product questions and give you an insider's look at the cosmetics industry. This is episode 322. Ooh, we're winding the year down. I'm your host, Valerie George, and with me today is Perry Romanowski. Hi, Perry. Hello, Valerie. So good to see you again in such a short time. (laughs) I know. We'll talk about that in a second. But first, we are going to recap or summarize what today's show is going to be about, and that is... Low molecular weight hyaluronic acid. Is it a problem? What is different about products targeted to menopausal skin? Is lavender oil a problem in lip balm? And is blow drying better than air drying? But first... That's blow drying your hair or is that your hands? Mm, Great question. We'll find out. (laughs) We will. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But first, uh, I just saw you in Los Angeles in the City of Angels. And you know what's so funny? We realized we hadn't seen each other in person in a few years, but it was hard to believe because it was like, no way, I see you all the time. I know. It's uh, digital is almost like, it's almost like I know you, but (laughs) I barely, I just know a digital version of you. You could just be like an AI, it's possible you were an AI generated. image here but i saw you in person so i know you're real i am real i am not fake but uh, it was really good to see you to socialize and we were uh in town together although i I live here so i guess i'm always in town uh but we got a chance to be together because we had our annual society of cosmetic chemists technical symposium that we were both attending that's right and uh, it was a great time was had by all we saw a lot of people there um, a lot of chemists you know Yeah, a lot of chemists in the industry. That was very cool. Uh, I got to experience downtown Los Angeles, which uh, I've, I've never stayed downtown before, so that was a real treat. Uh, it's, uh, it's a little different. <laughs> very different. <laughs> Perry was yeah. like, why is Skid Row in neighborhood on the map? And I'm like, well, it was <laughs> temporary, and now it's permanent. Well, see, I thought Skid Row was just some Hollywood made-up thing, but there's actually a neighborhood called Skid Row. <laughs> Yeah, you think they'd want to rename that or something? You, you don't. <laughs> you don't want to be down there. People live it on yeah. skids. Well, I did get to ride on that little, uh, the shortest train, uh, functioning train in the world. Apparently, it's a little train in L.A. that goes up a hill. Yeah, and it's like a hundred yards or something. Yeah, that is very cool. Very cool. Yeah, saves your stems from from walking uphill or downhill, which uh, can be yeah. equally. You as know, rough. before I was in L.A. I was actually in Hawaii, and I got to see that big, uh, big lava burst uh, and that volcano. Oh my goodness! Which is Are very you sure cool. you got to see it? You saw lava exploding. I saw little red lights. <laughs> so it wasn't quite the side of the mountain on fire, but uh, hey, it was glowing, and, and I think it was lava. <laughs> so. Do you know that reminds me? You should you listen to the podcast Ologies, right? On occasion, I you do. should have re-listened before your trip to the first episode with the volcanologist. Oh, well, maybe I'll go back and listen. And then you'll have to go back to Hawaii, and she'll tell you the real way to see it is on a helicopter tour. Oh, well, yeah. I'm not going to get my wife on a helicopter. I I barely get her on a plane. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Could you imagine flying over it? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. There was one uh, interesting thing that I saw on the beaches, though. On some of the beaches in Hawaii, they had a sign about 
sunscreen and all the sunscreens that were banned. Oh, interesting. They were banning any chemical sunscreen, and only ones allowed were the zinc oxides and titanium oxide ones. But I thought it was the homosalate and octanoxate that were banned. Is it more? It, well, I think officially those are the only two, but this sign said we're banning them all, and uh, I think there's legislation going through Hawaii that they're just banning it all. So, uh, yeah, there's that. And you know what? I, I felt a little bad uh, with the the chemical sunscreens that I brought from Chicago, <laughs> but, you know. Yeah, it's interesting. How is that enforceable? It's not enforceable, and it's, it's just on your honor, I think. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, I... I feel bad because it's, I mean, I don't feel bad because I was using those ones because I don't really believe that uh, reef safety of sunscreens is really that impactful. And, uh, you know, I think the zinc oxide ones are just as bad. And there's not a good data to show that any of them are really bad. So, I don't yeah, know. there have been a lot of studies uh, debunking the original uh, reef negative studies uh that have been done but kind of like the parabens problem you don't really hear about those you just hear about the original studies uh that were done that maybe have some design flaws so i think there's a lot more information to come um but you know at the end of the day people need to wear sunscreen uh, people need to be sun safe and uh yeah tough tough thing to enforce yeah, i guess well, you know wear sunscreen you know wear the zinc or wear whatever <laughs> just uh you know, I don't think there's good evidence that if you're wearing like a chemical sunscreen, it's going to harm reefs uh, because the thing that's really harming reef is global warming and the change in the pH of the ocean and that the impact of any sunscreen is going to pale in comparison to those kinds of changes. And, you know, we're not yeah. doing anything about that stuff. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, as some people say, every little bit counts, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Um, any big plans for the holidays? I know we're going to try to put out an episode or two more before the year ends. We have to do our recap episodes. We have to do our prediction episodes. Exactly. Uh, yeah, no, I'm just going to my sisters and then my sister-in-laws. And, you know, I'm drinking right now this beer. Um, this is called Crackle and Pop Beer because my wife made a beer advent calendar for me, so... There's a new beer every day in December, so very you get one. cool. Yeah, it's a very very clever idea there. Yeah, so, especially because uh, you like fun. beer. Yeah, uh, Mr. Cosmetic Chemist and I are just going to the Phoenix area in Arizona because uh, we have to watch Tom Brady play. Oh, that's right. Yeah, Mr. Cosmetic Chemist, not a cosmetic fan, but a big football fan. <laughs> Yeah, big Tom Brady fan. Tom's the third oh. man in our marriage, uh, which is oh. fine. Um, I've, been, sure. I've been given permission to have Tom as a celebrity cheat. Uh, it oh. wasn't my choice. It was Mr. Cosmetic Chemist's choice. But, you know, Tom Brady's not bad looking. Oh, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm sure I'm sure he'll do fine. <laughs> Speaking oh, of doing fine, aren't we doing a giveaway or something? What, oh, gosh. What okay, guys. Well, we are big boneheads, and we didn't realize uh, there's rules with giveaways. And so we basically uh, have to come up with a new giveaway structure. We are going to do it for January because Mr. Cosmetic Chemist has given me an ultimatum. All the products I have here. Uh, that I've been gifted over this year have to go. And they've got to go oh. to you. So we're going to be yeah. uh, mentioning in our uh, two episodes from now, which will be uh, the episode for January, uh, we will launch the uh, contest rules, uh, which we've learned. 
Yeah, basically what happens is you can't say, you can't do a giveaway this way because of the rules of Patreon and the FTC. You can't say, hey, go become a Patreon and then we're going to give away only things to patrons. Uh, you can't do that. That's that's illegal. We learned. So we're not doing that, but you can do. You can hold contests. For everybody. For yeah. Not just patrons, but for everybody. So if you are listening to the show, you can go in. You don't have to be a patron. And then we will judge the winners, and those winners will uh, somehow win uh, the stuff in Valerie's closet. <laughs> that, the yeah. stuff she's giving away that's in her closet, not, not everything in your closet. Yeah, but they could uh, take everything in my closet, too. Some things need to be dry cleaned. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, so we're going to have more details on that when we... Uh, shore up the details and listen to that for uh, in a couple of episodes yeah sorry about that we're chemists not lawyers <laughs> or professional podcasters yet anyway <laughs> yeah well let's head over to beauty science news what'd you see this week i saw something that i thought was kind of goofy oh gosh uh, the headline was really dove deodorant sprays are reportedly causing cysts and people are freaking out. And then it goes through saying that people who use spray on deodorants are claiming that it caused cysts. And you know what they use for their evidence? What? Uh, stuff that people put on Instagram. <laughs> oh my goodness. Like one post, right? And, well, what happened was there's it was one post and then as something happens, uh People saw that and they said, oh, you know, I got a cyst too. And then it just sort of steamrolls. So social media is like that. Like if somebody attributes uh, a condition they have to some product, everybody else with that product, and if it just seems like there's a hint that there was a problem, they're going to say, oh, it was that product. And then, you know, a product like Dove, which is demonstrated to be safe by by the uh, good folks over at Unilever, I'm sure, uh, there's never been any connection between cysts and this. Uh, that gets sort of the brand gets driven through the mud for no good reason. But social media just has that effect on the world. I thought it was interesting that the uh, TikToker or Twitter person, you know, wherever this was, said uh, they had to cut the cyst open or it would have eventually gotten into her bloodstream. Um, and based on the rest of the quote, I'm assuming the deodorant. Uh, but that's not how it works. Uh, also, a lot of people get cysts in a lot of places. I had a boyfriend who got a cyst in his butt crack one time. I'm sorry to be gross, oh, but he uh, did. <laughs> you don't even want me to describe to you what he had to do, to, and the nurses had to drain it, whatever, whatever. But that would be like him saying, oh, my body wash caused this cyst, right? Well, like, wait a second. He wasn't mm-hmm. spraying uh, Dove deodorant up his butt, was he? <laughs> I don't think so. He was a wrestler, <laughs> yeah. though, and wrestlers do strange things. But oh. anyway, um, you know, so it's just it's hard to say what caused these cysts. Uh, I don't think it's the deodorant. And I also don't think, um, you know, a person or two's experience on TikTok should create this national news story. Yeah, I guess people have, you know, you know, think something like that could easily get viral on instagram or tiktok or wherever social media doesn't filter by accuracy and truth it filters by sensationalism and then you have this website the daily hive who is just sensationalizing it and they write a whole article and the basis of their article is what they read on instagram or tiktok it's it's really kind of ridiculous (laughs) 
Yeah. So well, I'd, the bottom line here is no, the Dove deodorant sprays were not the thing causing the cyst. There's no good evidence that that's true. And just because, you know, a correlation does not equal causation, you need sort of more of a technical theory about why that would happen. And there just isn't one. Yeah. Well, uh, I do want to head over to some listener feedback. Uh, so we received- Listener feedback? We love feedback. We do, because... Yeah, if you want a feedback, just send an email to thebeautybrains at gmail.com, and we might uh, read your listener feedback on the air and react to it, too. Yeah. Well, Linda in Australia did a massive binge on our show, and she's really enjoyed them since me, Valerie, has joined. Well, that's that's the last, uh, you know, 160-something episodes, right? Yeah. <laughs> We're almost at the halfway point where you've... Done more than Randy. Oh, my goodness. Uh, well, she also loves what you do for the cats, Perry, and she loves oh. that you promote adoption on the podcast, which is fantastic. But uh, one thing that she'd like to point out is that not everything that is alternative is bad. Uh, then Linda goes on and says, I'm thinking of products like henna, which, of course, with your backgrounds in the hair industry, you'd be against. But humans have been using henna for more than 5,000 years, and no one seems to have an issue with it. You really only gave the cons rather than pros and cons. And I just wonder if you're scaremongering a little bit with it because it's not on your side of the commercial fence. You're not neutral and unbiased. I say we did a whole episode on coloring hair with henna, right? Right? Yeah. I mean, I don't remember it being slanted negatively but i guess it was in comparison to standard colorants but you know just in a response to that i mean i don't sell henna or anything i don't, I don't care what you buy but yeah I, i'm on the side of what what's the what's the evidence you know and so yeah I, I mean, i'm i'm not sure if i'm neutral and unbiased i see I, i'm biased by how i've been ex- Exposed to what I learned in the industry, but I'm not selling anything. So if henna worked better, I would have no problem saying buy henna. But also, I think Linda assumes we are corporate shills because she assumes with our backgrounds in the hair industry, we're automatically against an alternative methodology, which is not true. I actually right. am a hair color chemist and I work on all types of hair color, including henna. And I've worked on henna products and you know, the cons that I gave, and I have mentioned pros on the show. I have mentioned you can get really beautiful colors with henna. Uh, but I've mentioned the cons because the listener questions were asking about the cons, and I explained them. But my information comes from experience working with the chemistry and experience working on commercializing products, including henna. So it's not that I'm on one side of the commercial fence. Uh, it's literally a chemistry question. And the challenge with henna is the henna plant is a metal scavenger. It will suck up any trash in the soil it can. And so henna tends to have high heavy metal content. Those are facts. And if you use henna-based products with poor sourcing strategies, you can be putting a lot of heavy metals in your hair. And then if you decide to go and use commercial hair color, which uses hydrogen peroxide, a conventional commercial hair color, which uses hydrogen peroxide, you will have a catalyzed heat reaction on your head and possibly have third degree burns. So these aren't because I'm a corporate shill or on the commercial side of a fence. These are chemical facts about henna. I don't have anything against it. I've work on, worked on products that use henna um, with it. So I apologize that it came across as negative, but this is really based on the research that I've done in the industry and the work I do as a chemist. 
Yeah, and really just because something's been used for 5,000 years doesn't mean we've invented something better that should be replace it. (laughs) Exactly. And I'd also like to point out that just because it's been used for 5,000 years, metals aside, doesn't mean it's safe. Henna's main coloring component is lawsone, and lawsone is actually a mutagen. So there's that. Yeah, so, you know, (laughs) if, (laughs) if henna was an invented synthetic chemical, nobody would use it. Yeah, it's, yeah. So anyway, just, yeah, Linda, I'm sorry we gave you that impression, but you know, we're just, we're just talking about the facts here. I'm not against everything alternative, say like shampoo bars. (laughs) Well, that's the other one that bothered Linda a bit was saying that shampoo bars just aren't as good. And it didn't appear that either of you have tried them. I'm sorry we didn't give that impression. You know, it is a 45 minute show. uh, So it's hard to explain everything. And sometimes we have to edit things out, but I've actually tried a lot of shampoo bars. In fact, uh, I spent probably eight to 12 months working on a shampoo bar project at my previous job. And part of that was purchasing as many bars uh, commercially available on the market as we could and trying them and evaluating them and then working on our own formulation. So I've tried a lot of shampoo bars. I don't like them and I don't like them because the surfactants that you have to use have an extremely low water solubility and so they're difficult to rinse from the hair. Additionally, I believe that they have an increased propensity for irritation because of the high solids content that you have to yeah. use with them. And that's my scientific opinion based on uh, several months of research that we've had to do on them. So I'm sorry that I've uh, given the impression I, I haven't tried them, but I have, and my opinion still stands on that. And, you know, i not a regular user, but I've certainly tried shampoo bars, and I'm just not impressed. And compared to a liquid shampoo they certainly don't work as well yeah Uh, it's much easier to spread through your hair with a liquid it's you get a better foam i mean shampoo bars can work and some people can like them but you know i if you're evaluating for the things that i think are important in a shampoo the bars just don't work as well finally one last thing linda you know wanted to let us know there were several things in the email uh was that I know you hate free from labeling, but you must realize some people are sensitive to various things. And so rather than reading the ingredients, it's an easy way to see something you are avoiding. Valid point. I know everything is deemed safe in the quantities that it's sold, but we may have a personal reason not to want to use an ingredient. And it's often helpful having that clearly labeled. Yeah, true. You've also laughed about products saying they're labeled as vegan, but it can be really hard to know if something actually is. You poo-poo it, but given just about anything can be made without animal ingredients, I think it's fair we may want to make a choice easily. There's not a lot here that I really disagree with, but, you know, if labels were clear, uh, that might be better. Um, But labels, when they say they're free from, they're not saying they're free. they're, They're implying something else about that. So if it says, I'm free from sulfates, that's implying that sulfates are somehow bad. And that's just not... There's not good evidence for that. Um, And so often these free-from become implied negativities about the ingredient. And in fact, in the EU, they have some rules against making claims like that because a claim like that naturally disparages an otherwise safe ingredient. So you can't do that in the EU. In America, you could say whatever you want pretty pretty much, but uh, that doesn't make it true. Uh, But as far as the vegan goes... The thing is, the term vegan isn't really regulated in terms of cosmetics. And so just because a company says that they're vegan, 
It doesn't necessarily mean they actually are. Just to their standards, they consider themselves vegan. And just because a company doesn't claim that they're vegan, that also doesn't mean that it isn't vegan. For example, Vaseline is a vegan product, right? They don't write that on the bottle, but there's nothing animal-derived about petroleum jelly. Yeah. Unless, I suppose, you can go back and call it, uh, you know, dinosaurs, but yeah, I <laughs> nobody can, looks at that. I can see where the free-from labeling is helpful if you have a true challenge. For example, tree nuts. A lot of people are very sensitive to tree nuts, need to avoid yeah. products with them. And so you have to clearly label that the product is free from tree nuts or specific types. I agree that most of the free-from claims are used to promote a product or are for advertising versus a true um, health concern that people may have. And that's where I think it's a little bit disappointed, disappointing. In Europe, I know that you can do, for example, like made without gluten. Uh, if someone has a gluten sensitivity, those types of things are okay. But right. um, you can't say free from gluten, like as if gluten were negative, right? It's just a thing people may want to be concerned about. Maybe... You know, I'm sure there's a regulatory person who will say, oh, you have that wrong. But in my experience, we were allowed to use the label uh, made without gluten. Anyway, um, Linda, thank you so much for the feedback. You know, maybe, you know, as much as we can, I know the shows are short. We'll try to explain our positioning, I think, on things moving forward. I know it'll be a little tough. Um, We're sorry we came across as dismissive in some of these cases. I know sometimes we can be a little dismissive, uh, but you know, does come from a place of experience. Right. And it comes from, you know, if you're in the industry long enough and you're on the product development side, you, especially in the science part of it, you develop a certain cynicism about industry claims. And that doesn't just go for small brands uh, or alternative brands. That goes for the big brands too. Uh, I always look at the claim that a product is making your hair 10 times stronger it's not really making your hair 10 times stronger, but in the way that they do this tricky test in the lab to show that hair breaks less because the hair is conditioned, it's they call that stronger. That's not really stronger, but, you know, this is the kind of jiggery-pokery that goes on in the industry, uh, whether it's big brands or small brands. And so, you know, that, I've developed a little bit of high amount of skepticism, and some people might call it cynicism. I don't yeah. know. Well, Linda, thanks again for the feedback. Yeah, and if any of you have uh, feedback... Love to hear it. We ne- won't necessarily uh, read it on, on the show, but if we uh, are interested enough, we, we could do it. And uh, love to have it. Just send us an email at thebeautybrains at gmail.com. We ready for some questions? Yeah, let's head over to Beauty Science Questions. Annie asks, Hi, Beauty Brains. I have seen some fear-mongering on various forums and social media posts that low molecular weight hyaluronic acid is inflammatory and is bad for your skin. For example, on this Reddit post. This is a study indicating low molecular weight hyaluronic acid has inflammatory properties that sometimes people refer to. And we'll post a link to the uh, show notes. I'm skeptical of these rumors for various reasons. Studies seem to be primarily in vitro which means uh, not in a human. Cell lines use melanocytes instead of keratinocytes. I'm also wondering how prevalent low molecular weight hyaluronic acid is in skincare, but they, but there may be no way of knowing. Would love to see this covered in a podcast. Thank you. Well, this is a great question. Uh, very interesting. And I looked into it a little bit. And there was actually a study that was published in 2012, which was after the 
the wound research study. Uh, and this was published in the Journal of Clinical and Aesthetic Dermatology. And this one said exactly the opposite. <laughs> in fact, it was titled The Efficacy and Safety of Low Molecular Weight Hyaluronic Acid Topical Gel in the Treatment of Facial Seborrheic Dermatitis. And mm. they specifically conducted in an outpatient setting a small perspective observational non-blinded safety and efficacy study on topical anti-inflammatory formulations containing low molecular hyaluronic acid uh, that is a salt gel at 0.2 percent they had 15 subjects ranging in age from 18 to 75 so 15 actual real humans and what they found was interim data for seven of the 15 patients showed that the hyaluronic acid treatment resulted in improvement of all measured endpoints including erythema pruitus and scaliness so basically when used topically in real people no there wasn't a pro-inflammatory effect and so yeah i'm with you on the skepticism the other piece is that that study didn't tell you what did they consider low molecular weight hyaluronic acid because hyaluronic acid is this gigantic protein right yeah it's a polymer big. really mm-hmm. and normally it has I don't know, something like 300,000 Daltons. That's, that's a regular molecular weight hyaluronic acid. Well, you know, there's this thing called the 500 Dalton rule, and that relates to the size of a molecule and how well it's going to penetrate the skin. And they pretty much found anything that causes sensitivity and allergens are usually smaller than 500 Daltons. And so even low molecular weight hyaluronic acid is not near anywhere near 500 Daltons. It's much bigger than that, even the small one. And so none of it penetrates deeper than the epidermis. And so it's never, it's not going to get down to the dermis where it would have interaction with these living cells anyway. So I don't know. I, from what I can tell, this is these rumors are all uh, just uh, rumors and extrapolations uh, for things that don't actually happen in real life. Yeah, even uh, one of the smallest molecular weight hyaluronic acids I know is an ultra-low one that's just uh, 3 kilodaltons, which is 3,000 daltons. So it's still about six times higher than the penetration ability of uh, the 500 daltons. Uh, But, you know, some of the suppliers do seem to have some penetration data. I don't know, but... I just don't think um, that it's that much of an issue. I don't think people are seeing um, as much issue as, as people are saying. Now, maybe this um, inflammatory effect that people are on Reddit are, are saying is bad is with injectable hyaluronic acid. I do know that a lot of people get it injected under the skin, so maybe that's causing some issues. Well, to be fair, I looked at the Reddit thread and it was, you know, it didn't have a lot of comments on it, and it was actually deleted a little while ago. So <laughs> oh. it was probably just fear mongering anyway. Some somebody put up a YouTube channel uh, video in French, and it was, maybe it was just this guy. I don't know. Uh, so I'm skeptical of it. I couldn't find any other evidence beyond the article that uh, was shared with us in Wound Healing Magazine, which was again not done on people. It was done in a petri dish. I'd also like to make one public service announcement, PSA here, big time. One of the most popular questions I get on my ingredient website 
is if people can take the hyaluronic acid solution I sell and inject it under their skin. And I find that very scary that people are on (laughs) Etsy looking for hyaluronic acid to inject under their skin. And I always say this is for external use only. Um, Yeah. So do not buy hyaluronic acid online and attempt to inject it yourself or have a friend do it. Like people would do that. I think people do it. Okay, that doesn't seem like a good idea at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, do not do it because for sure, at best, you will get inflammation and irritation. Yeah, <laughs> and you could get, you know, microbial contamination, get a disease and die. So yeah, that's, that's the other, pardon my fear mongering, but don't do it. <laughs> I literally get a couple questions a week on that and I'm just like, wow. oh my goodness, put the needle down. Anyway, our next question Comes to us from Septa. Septa actually said some nice stuff about the kitty cat, so thank you for that comments. But here's a question she had. Hi, Beauty Brains. Don't know if it's the same over there, but menopause is big news here in Ireland and the UK. Vichy has a dedicated range. Clarins were advertising it, but uh, changed their advert to older skins. Uh, And we have clothes for menopause, and obviously supplements uh, is a big player. Number seven has launched a menopause range, which is more extensive than their number seven ranges. But if you work the offers, it will be reasonable. So I guess pricing-wise, it's more expensive. Now, I don't see anything special in the Inky List, but I'm not great at understanding Inky List. The Ulta website does quote the ingredients, if that helps, and she gives a link. Could you give us your views on the number seven menopause products and skincare for menopause skin? Thanks for the podcast. It's brilliant. I'm not working at the moment, so not a Patreon yet, but thank you for answering the question. Kind regards, Septa. Oh, that's very nice. This is one of the hugest trends in beauty over the next few years. Be prepared to see several more products, several more ranges launch in this area because uh, all the trend forecasts say it's cool, right? So then all the brands are like, wow, this is going to be a huge area. I'm, I'm guessing that's the order it occurs in. I don't know. But anyway. Well, there is a, an aging population, right? People are living longer. And so there's more menopausal people living today than ever before. And that is going to increase, I suppose, right? Yeah. Well, we took a look at the number seven menopause skincare range from Boots and weren't able to find much in terms of science other than it's targeted for the appearance of the signs of skin aging, right? Well, one of the claims they say is it was co-created with menopausal women. So <laughs> they, they got cosmetic chemists that were menopausal and had them do what? what like, I guess they just asked menopausal women and consumer research, what kind of products do you want? And you know what kind of products they end up giving them? The same kind of products that every other product is. Yeah. I'm looking at this uh, Nourishing Overnight Cream, for example, in number seven. It looks nice. Yeah, it looks like a perfectly fine product, but it's water, glycerin, dimethicone, and shea butter. Um, Those are all pretty standard ingredients that you'll find in the non-menopausal skincare products, right? Yeah. You know, in looking at this line, I was actually really hoping I would see science-based skincare that wasn't just your standard issue anti-aging products. 
you know, we've talked about this a few episodes. I had the opportunity to see the uh, creator of Ion Skincare, the skincare that uh, helps reduce the iron content in skin. Remember, we laughed right. about it. You're not aging, you're rusting, all that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, they're uh, resting, yeah. That skincare line is for menopausal women, but it's really based it, based on medical research. They have evidence, many papers, uh, talking about the increased iron content in skin as a woman ages and goes through menopause because she has no way to deplete uh, iron, so it just accumulates in her skin. And right. the technology that they use, you know, I don't know if the technology in the skincare actually works or not, but, you know, the thought is if we can reduce some of the iron out of the skin, like literally reduce the iron, it's a chemistry joke, Perry might get it, uh, <laughs> Because iron's oxidizing, you can reduce it. Sure, oxidize, reduce, yeah. Yeah, It was a bad joke. Anyway, that's really based on science, right? There's proof that women have this, uh, menopausal women have an iron and skin problem. And so in theory, if you can get rid of that, you can help reverse signs of aging that iron causes. But in this case, it's just standard issue like, oh, reduce uh, the appearance of wrinkles and make the face and neck look firmer. I'm like, that's every cream's goal right right and it says like it was dermatologist approved for menopausal skin uh, like okay Mm -hmm. um and it delivers hydration to dry menopausal skin it seems like they just took the ad adjective menopausal put it in front of wherever they were going to say skin and use a regular product (laughs) i mean there's nothing not to say that this is a bad product. It looks like a perfectly finely formulated yeah, product, but it's just, the marketing here is... Where is the menopausal you know, science, yeah. right? So right. hopefully from brands moving forward, if this trend really does take off and we address this need that the menopausal skincare market has, hopefully it's based in science. I will say one thing I appreciated uh, in the photographs is that they really used... Uh, women who are of menopausal age and the photos are not retouched. So you can see all their peach fuzz and their little imperfections and even mascara that's kind of fallen onto the face uh, in the photographs, which is really nice. You know, I once did a uh, 100% gray coverage line and the models in the photographs were literally uh, 20 years old and didn't really have a whole lot of gray hair. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. So moving forward, it was kind of like, okay, that was a little obtuse, but uh, I really like their uh, models that they used in the images. You know, this does give me an idea though of a, a special uh, skincare line for, for older cats and it's menopausal skincare. Oh, (laughs) what are their needs? I I don't know. I know you just came up with the idea. You're working on it. I did it right. I'm just I'm just spitballing here. Menopausal uh, <laughs> with the paw. So yeah, I, I like that. I oh my yeah. goodness! <laughs> All right, I think we should go on to the next question. Well, I mean, bottom line, it's a fine line, right? I'm sure it's fine. Yeah, it's a fine line. This looks like a clever marketing position, uh, but there's nothing about the products that I think uh, will make it work better on menopausal skin than just on regular skin. So. All right. Anyway. And that kind of thing happens in the cosmetic industry all the time. You take a standard product, you sort of tailor the story of the product to a specific niche group, and then you sell it to them. And and sometimes that works. All right. Our next question comes to us from Kelly. Hi, guys. Way back in episode 169, which was, I think, my fourth episode, uh, you mentioned it was not good to put lavender oil on the skin and then go in the sun. 
I recently received a sample of Wishful's Honey Balm Gel Moisturizer by Huda Beauty, and I really liked it, and I was considering picking it up after I finished my current moisturizer. Lavender oil is an ingredient as it is lavender scented. Now I'm wondering if this moisturizer is a bad choice, especially since I live in South Florida. Do you have any other insight into the product and its ingredients and claims? Any info is greatly appreciated. Thank you, Kelly. Well, thanks for the question. I looked at the link. It's the Wishful Honey Balm Jelly Moisturizer. Sold in two ounces. Wow. Two ounce products for 30 bucks. I mean, it's pretty good. If you can get it. But if you look at the formula, it's what? Water, dimethicone, mm-hmm. dipropylene glycol, glycerin, uh, PCA dimethicone. Pretty standard stuff. Niacinamide in there. Yeah. Looks like um, an okay looking, cream. Yeah, but but you're getting way down here past the honey extract or way past the 1% line. And then you see lavender oil. So to me, this is just a, uh, a claims ingredient, right? And they're not yeah. really enough in there to have any big impact on the performance of the product. So from that standpoint, just based on the amount that's in there, it's unlikely that it's a problem at all. Any, any way you look at it, whether it's uh, phototoxic or any lavender oil has any other problems, you know, lavender oil isn't listed by the CIR as an ingredient that you need to be afraid of. So uh, there's that. I think it's okay. I think the reason why, and I don't remember, um, I probably said it only out of abundance of precaution, only because while lavender oil has mixed reviews on whether or not it actually is phototoxic, uh, some people will say it's not, it does contain a good slug of linalool, which is a fragrance allergen, which may be uh, photosensitizing. And so like any essential oil, you just want to be watchful, or fragrance, I should say as well, you want to be watchful, be careful, see how your skin reacts. Uh, within the sun, you would definitely know if you had some kind of challenge with it. Yeah, and if you're worried about it, you know, just use it at nighttime. It's this tiny moisturizer, and, you know, by the time you wake up and go out again, uh, you wouldn't have to worry about it at all. Yeah. Uh, You know, it's interesting. They do use phenoxyethanol as a preservative in here. I don't know if it's their main preservative, but uh, they do have uh, Glycerith 26, PEG 100 stearate, I would be more concerned that phenoxyethanol is inactivated in this highly ethoxylated system, and it may not be preserved yeah. very well. That would be my concern. Yeah. But uh, you know, yeah, I can see yeah, how the lavender oil is a little worrisome. Yeah, I can see that. But I, I think for the most part, that you probably won't have a problem with it unless you have a problem with it. But uh, yeah, you'll most know. people probably won't. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Last question by our biggest fan from Patreon. Timothy, remember Timothy? Timothy, hi there. Timothy says, hey, Beauty Braids, I'm dying to hear your thoughts on the dermatologist's recent post stating that blow-drying your hair with heat is actually better than letting it air dry. I could have sworn that you've quoted research in the past that says the opposite. Valerie, the oh-so-wise hair guru, please help me and my hairdryer live in harmony by dropping your expert knowledge on this matter, I'm drying to know the truth. I love this these guys. A punster, your number one fan and your favorite fan, Timothy. P.S. Here is the research, and he lists the uh, article: hair damage, hair shaft damage from heat and drying time on the hair dryer, which was published in 2011 in the good old annals of dermatology. 
So uh, this article is often very quoted, and I've seen other cosmetic chemists quote this article. I've seen uh, this dermatologist post quote the article. And the thing that's really important to know is a scientific study does not necessarily equate to consumer perception because there is not necessarily a translation of the scientific study to real-life use real life use case scenarios. And right. additionally, sometimes the differences that are measured in a study can't be felt by a human or can't be detected by a human, or at the end of the day, right. it d- doesn't really make a difference. Right. So I think those are all things to keep in mind as we go through this study. So basically they took tresses and they treated a tress, a total of 30 times with the drying tool. Uh, it was a hair dryer. And they had five tresses, one with no treatment uh, at all. So um, basically didn't get treated, didn't get dried with anything. Um, So that's the air drying one. uh, No, it was like a control. Like it wasn't washed and dried. It was just like left as is, right? Okay. okay. Then they uh, washed a tress and dried it without using a hair dryer at 20 degrees Celsius room temperature. Then the next three tresses, listen carefully, they dried them all with a hair dryer for 60 seconds at 15 15 centimeters away, 47 degrees Celsius. Then they shortened the time to 30 seconds, moved in a little closer to 10 centimeters, increased the heat to 61 degrees Celsius. Then they cut the time in half again to 15 seconds, five centimeters away. So they're very close to the hair, uh, two inches away about. And 95 degrees Celsius, which is uh, about 200 Fahrenheit, pretty close uh, to what a blow dryer may be operating at. Okay. Then they looked at the hair with a transmission electron microscopy, and they did a lipid analysis on the hair, and they also measured uh, water content and hair color. Basically, at the end of the study, they said, although using a hair dryer causes more surface damage than natural drying... Using a hair dryer causes less damage than drying hair naturally at 15 centimeters with continuous motion. Okay, so they're saying, wow, air drying your hair causes way more damage than using heat with that information. That's what it says, right? That's what you would take away from oh, it? I'm looking, at, I'm looking at their results and what they say. They mm-hmm. say hair surface damage was examined by the SEM after repeated shampoo and drying. Okay. Yep. Lifting or cracks were not evident in the untreated and the naturally dried groups. Mm -hmm. Now, in the 47 treated, there were multiple longitudinal cracks. Yeah. There were more cracks in the 61, and the most severe damage was in the 95 centimeter, 95 degree treated groups. Which is what heat does. Heat is known to be damaging on hair. It can cause these uh, cracks. It can cause bubbling. It can cause cuticles to lift. So for the hair surface damage, uh, blow drying is definitely worse, at least according to this study. Now, I think the differences are in the other factors they measured, like the hair cuticle and the cortex and the moisture analysis and that sort of thing. Exactly. But here's the thing. They only noted their conclusion was at 15 centimeters is less damage than air drying. What person is taking a hair dryer 15 centimeters away from the hair where the temperature is 47 degrees Celsius. Right. Which is not a realistic use case scenario 
um, of yeah. the hair dryer, right? Usually it's pretty hotter than that. Um, yeah. I just, I don't think that that's a realistic use case scenario. Most people are closer to 95 degrees and they're honestly maybe closer than five centimeters to the hair. So I don't think in any real life use case scenario, blow drying is causing less damage than air drying. I think almost always people are close. They're using a high heat. And so the study is yeah. a little bit misleading based on the use case scenario. And so people will latch onto that and say, yeah, this study did prove it, but no one's saying, oh, wait, is that a realistic characteristic? Yeah. And as far as what is, as far as damage for your hair, that surface damage is important. Like it's more damage on the surface is going to mean it's not as shiny. It's going to mean when you're combing it, the, the comb is going to get tangled more. Yeah. I mean, that's important damage. <laughs> and it was interesting to me that they they didn't do the obvious study, like a combing study. They did a, a an electron microscope scanning, uh, but okay. But why didn't you just do a tress combing and see, oh, is there more damage there Yeah. Uh, in real life? So that's, I guess uh, cosmetic chemists were not running this study, but that's what I would have done. Yeah. So again, it's important to look at the conclusion, not just at the overall conclusion, but at what conditions led, led to that conclusion piece. And yeah, how they did it and such. Yeah, yeah. I don't believe anyone's, you know, 15 centimeters away at 47 degrees Celsius with continuous motion. You know, they yeah. may be hovering, you know, not gliding up and down. Certainly if you go to a hair salon, they're putting that blow dryer right on the brush, dragging it, which right. has your hair on it, dragging it through the hair to smooth it down. So I would say most likely he is your worst enemy. And based on my personal experience, he is your worst enemy, not air dryer. Yeah. There's a way you could do this study. And it's interesting, nobody has done this study uh, which would tell you that real life scenarios it would be a salon study it would be a tress study it certainly doesn't need a scanning electron microscope uh, to assess the thing so yeah. because you know it could it could look terrible on a scanning electron microscope and have no real world application because nobody feels it so. and that's really just one aspect of it you need multiple yeah. uh, dimensions to detect damage and and two um, yeah that's all I have to say Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Hey, you know what uh, What I have is the uh, hearing that music. <laughs> and the cats, too. Yeah. Well, that's all the time, everyone. Thanks for listening. Hey, if you get a chance, can you go over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen and leave us a review? That's going to help other people find the show and ensure that we have a full docket of beauty questions to answer. And incidentally, if you have a question... Just record it on your smartphone and email it to thebeautybrains at gmail.com. Perry, I know we have that Patreon contest coming up that's actually open to all listeners now. Hey, exactly. But how, do, but how does <laughs> we'll one sign more, up for Patreon? Well, we'll give you more information on that giveaway. But uh, if you want to be a patron and support the show and keep us ad-free, go to patreon.com slash thebeautybrains and subscribe. If you want to see what we're up to or not up to, follow us on our various social media accounts. On Instagram, we're at TheBeautyBrains2018. On Twitter, we're at TheBeautyBrains. And we have a Facebook page. And maybe or maybe not a TikTok after all this TikTok disaster. We have one. We're squatting on it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, not much else. Well, thanks again for listening, everyone. And remember, be brainy about your beauty. Thanks, everyone. Kittens!